WHYY and Billy Penn, this is your weekend edition of Hittin' Season, a Philadelphia Phillies podcast. My name is Justin Clue. I write for Baseball Prospectus and Billy Penn, and it's just me today as we head into another weekend of the offseason without a lot to talk about. But there was just enough to mention that I felt like I would at least give you some talking points as we head into another late winter slate gray weekend here in the Northeast. As John Stolnes told you last night, we had a big trade go down in Major League Baseball as the Orioles finally pulled the trigger on a deal for a big-name pitcher and an ace in Corbin Burns of the Milwaukee Brewers. Now, the Brewers, I think people forgot about this. The Brewers didn't, the Brewers made it clear that they were open for business earlier this offseason. And that was big news when it happened because guys like Burns or Devin Williams or Freddie Peralta, another starter, were all pretty valuable players to other teams. Uh, There are plenty of other teams trying to build out their pitching staffs, and the pitching staff has been the strong point in Milwaukee for quite some time. Um, I'm sure Reese Hoskins, the Brewers' newest acquisition um, as far as major league contributors go, is very pleased to see the team that he signed with uh, not too long ago uh, is trading away from its biggest point of strength. But, you know, disregarding the Brewers, as is often the case, uh, the Orioles are, of course, the big winners of this trade. This has been a pretty big week for Baltimore, um, not just because of what happened to the Ravens, but also because the long-fabled, occasionally rumored change in the ownership landscape for their club seems to be taking place. Uh, the Angelos family has for so long been at the helm of the of the Orioles, If you've been keeping track of what Orioles owner John Angelos' actions have been in the past two years or so, but he's not, let's just say he's not a great public speaker. He's not great at thinking on his feet, and he's certainly not beloved by Baltimore Orioles fans. Uh, It just didn't seem like, it seemed like the plan was, oh, well, we'll just be like the Rays, who are a team that doesn't spend a lot and still always seems to be in the mix when it comes to the postseason. And we'll just build out like a really strong farm system and development system so that we can act like it's, it's about commitment. But what it's really about is just not having to spend money on free agents. Um, and you know, that can work, but you'll notice that the Rays have not won a world series. So I'm not sure that's as great an example as, as owners love to think it is. But in any case, uh, he has, Angelos has been, um, you know, he's stepping aside, let's say to put it gracefully. Uh, and a new ownership group will be the majority owners of the Orioles moving forward. And that news came out this week that this group with Carl, uh, with Cal Ripken, (laughs) Cal Ripken, an owner of a National Women's Soccer League team, two former mayors, three billionaires, and this is all from the Baltimore Banner, uh, a couple of Baltimore City College alumni. So it feels like a very Baltimore kind of group is is moving in. And it was really funny then the timing of this big trade that went down because it seemed like as soon as there was an ownership change in Baltimore, the trade that their fans had wanted for so long finally happened. So the timing of that was pretty funny. But then the even funnier part to me was uh, today when Baltimore Banner Orioles beat writer Andy Koska pointed out that Mike Elias wants to note that John Angelos is still the control person and Elias and Angelos work together on this trade. The timing with the new ownership partnership is not the reason the trade was made. The only reason 
to make sure this information gets out there is because of someone's ego. And we all know whose ego. Like, there's no... At the end of the day, not I don't think even Orioles fans would really care about like, okay, well, who was who, who was responsible for this? End of the day, Elias is the one who's going to get the credit anyway. When they're looking back on this deal in history, they'll be like, okay, well, who was making the roster decisions at that point? Oh, Mike Elias? Great. But I can just tell. I mean, you know, this is obviously just a guess, but I can just tell that Angelos was like, um, make sure you tell them that I was involved. Um, they're going to think that Cal Ripken rode in here on a rainbow of black and orange Orioles magic and made the deal they always wanted and that I was not a part of that. And I need you to tell them that I was a big part of that because I'm a big, smart owner. I was involved and I did this good thing. This is a guy who will never hesitate to get the credit that uh, that he thinks he deserves. So that was just really funny to imagine a situation where he's elbowing his way to the front and grabbing the mic. But at the end of the day, who cares? The Orioles made the trade they wanted to make and their team got a lot better. Uh, they gave up two prospects, D.L. Hall and Joey Ortiz, uh, as well as a conditional pick of the draft to get Corbin Burns. And it just seems like such a such a fleecing. It seems like such a very low price to pay for a pitcher of Burns' caliber. Uh, Burns is a guy who has been taking one-year deals uh, since, uh, I believe, 2018. So the Orioles don't have him locked up long-term yet, but nobody's thinking about that. Nobody's thinking about that in Baltimore, where the Ravens just got bounced out of the playoffs again, and the Orioles had a pretty abbreviated appearance in the Major League Baseball playoffs uh, last season. So what they're seeing is the move that has been broadcasted for them by their fans for... The entire offseason. Like, please, please. We have a very young pitching staff. They're all very good pitchers. They put up some great numbers. But it became pretty clear that, you know, lack of experience really hurt them in the postseason. And I think with a year of a, you know, a postseason experience gave them all a little more awareness of what to expect in that situation. But then you bring in a guy like Burns, who can sit at the top of that rotation and, and really do what he does, but also uh, serve as an example. And I think that's going to be really valuable for the Orioles. It could have been pretty valuable for any other teams. Like, as as John discussed, that price tag is low enough that you do have to wonder, where was everyone else? Where, where What were we all doing? What were the Phillies doing that um, they weren't also in on Burns? Not that they have any real huge need for him. Uh, I'm not really surprised that the Phillies weren't, you know, connected to this. Same reason they weren't super into Blake Snell or... or um, uh, any of the other starters who have been available this offseason because their main starter goal was Aaron Nola. They took care of that. They moved on. They have not been super invested in any high name or high tier starting pitching uh, player, uh, starting pitchers this offseason, except for Yamamoto. They uh, made a push to, to sign him, but you know, when they found out they weren't going to be the team, they didn't keep sending in counter offers or, or bothering or text bombing him or anything. They, they kind of let that situation go and moved on. And it doesn't seem like there is going to be a whole lot of moves left to make for the Phillies, at least not the kind of moves people have wanted to see all winter long. Um, I think there's probably like two or three moves you can expect them to make. None of them are going to be as interesting as you want them to be. So that's, Pretty much what you can expect from here on out. Um, still still pretty wild to see the shifting landscape in the American League as the Orioles acquire Corbin Burns uh, and really make it into a, a Orioles-Yankees 
rivalry in the AL East. The Red Sox are out. The Red Sox are not going to be contending this year. Their fans are in a completely opposite state of mind. The Blue Jays are, of course, pesky, as always, and the Rays are always in the mix, but I feel like people are going to look at that division and see the Orioles and, and Yankees at the top of their projections going into the season, which is not too far away. Uh, Baseball America wrote that Burns is a three-time All-Star who won the 2021 NL Cy Young. He's finished in the top eight in voting for the award in each of the last four seasons. Uh, He has pitched to a 2.86 ERA since 2020. And hey, in the one way in which the Phillies are kind of involved with this, they also wrote that in the last four seasons, only Phillies right-hander Zach Wheeler has accumulated more F-war than Burns, and the right-hander has also been a workhorse by modern standards with at least 167 innings pitched in each of the last three seasons. I mean, that last thing is something the Phillies have really looked for, not just in pitchers, but players across the board. They want, they want to see that consistency before they get to Philadelphia. Does it always pay off? No. Sometimes it just means, yeah, the Wheel of Fortune has spun around a lot for this guy, and he's gotten away with some stuff, but... Now he's coming to your team, and they're going to spin the wheel again, and it might not land somewhere that you want it to land. Uh, but in any case, to, to see him up there alongside Zach Wheeler statistically, um, you know, it's not surprising. It does kind of make you think, boy, imagine if they were on the same team. But it was never going to happen. It was never really on the table. It's not even really worth talking about. Uh, and Oh, and speaking of pitching, just to close the loop on something I mentioned a few weeks ago, it was the Braves who signed Ken Giles, former 100 Miles Giles, former Phillies per- prospect and Phillies closer and guy who got screamed at by Ryan Sandberg in Sandberg's most open display of emotion while manager of the Philadelphia Phillies. I believe he and Bob McClure took turns screaming at, at Giles at one point. But uh, yeah, it was the Braves who have signed Ken Giles to a minor league deal after his workout for multiple MLB scouts the other day. This after Jake Diekman signed with the Mets and Hector Neris went to the Cubs. Big offseason for the 2015 Phillies bullpen. So I'm sure that's that's all anyone's talking about is the alumni of the Phillies 2015 bullpen and, and where they're off to this winter. All right, well, the main thing I wanted to talk about in this episode um, was something I feel like has gone kind of undermentioned uh, in Phillies circles at least, and that is the passing of... Jimmy Williams, former MLB player and manager. Uh, His playing career was not very robust, uh, but he did spend a couple of years with the Cardinals as a 22 to 23 year old in the mid 60s. He was a manager for the Red Sox and uh, from uh, 1986 to 1989, he managed the Blue Jays from 97 to 2001. He managed the Red Sox. And from 2002 to 2004, he managed the Houston Astros. Uh, It was after that, though, that his Phillies connection comes in. He was the bench coach for the Philadelphia Phillies from 2007 to 2008. So not a very long time, but as you know from those years I just mentioned, a very important time to be a member of the Phillies coaching staff. Um, Oh, I also wanted to mention he played on the Alaska Gold Panners minor league team with Greg Nettles and Tom Seaver in 1965. Just a fun, fun little tidbit. Uh, But yeah, Jimmy Williams was hired to be the Phillies bench coach going into the 2007 season. Of course, the Phillies won the National League East that year, got bounced out of the playoffs by the Rockies in a pretty big hurry. Then the next year, they won the division again and eventually went on to win the 2008 World Series. It would be his second ring as a coach. Um, and then he eventually he decided not to come back to the club the following year. 
That I've seen framed as he wanted to go out on top, but also I've seen it as he wanted a little extra money that the Phillies weren't willing to pay. And the reason for that was it, uh, he, he was something of a co-manager, more, more than a bench coach. He kind of was viewed as a co-manager of the team with Charlie Manuel, which wasn't viewed as a slight to Charlie Manuel. I believe Charlie Manuel was very open to that idea. And I think, you know, we have a pretty good general idea of, of Charlie and how he manages and what his interests are. And I can totally see a situation where he was like, look, I got all these young hitters and I just want to talk to them about hitting. And I just want to talk about hitting and I want to show them hitting and I want to hang out by the batting cage. And I just want to just bats and swings and stances and contact and power and slugging. I just want to talk about all of it all day. And if so, if someone else could just step up and handle, you know, all the clipboard stuff, that would be, that'd be really great. And it seems like Jimmy Williams kind of took on that role. Um, this was written by Sam Donnellan in the Daily News when Williams was leaving the team. Speculation abounds that Williams asked for money closer to the $1.5 million being paid to Charlie Manuel than to the salaries paid to other Phillies coaches. Most certainly, Williams saw himself as a co-manager over the last two years, a belief that Manuel, Manuel's egoless manner did not tame. Indeed, one of the more poignant clips following Brad Lidge's final pitch is of Manuel hugging Williams and saying something to him in his ear. Yes, that is something that stands out in my mind. As I remember all the stories um, that that came out about the 2008 World Series, one of them being Jimmy Williams got Charlie Manuel's first hug after they clinched the World Series title. Part of that was probably because they were in the dugout standing next to each other, but it's also because of the role Jimmy Williams had in that team's success. I mean, he really did shoulder the load of management with... Charlie Manuel there. They were a team. Uh, and the team they were working for won the World Series. And, and they got uh, that, that that Williams was the first guy he turned to was really, you know, th that, that really meant something. And like I said, they don't know exactly. He, Manuel, when asked, didn't know exactly what he had said to Jimmy Williams in that moment. But it was something to the tune of you were a really big part of this. And so I wanted to mention Jimmy Williams, and I wanted to talk about Jimmy Williams for a second, um, just because he passed away uh, this past week, and um, he, you know he played he played a really important role in a very memorable, important, and formative moment in Philly's history. And he had to take over. You know, any of the times that Charlie Manuel got kicked out, there was a game in late July that year where the Phillies needed a pinch hitter late in the game. Um, they had sent Jeff Jenkins up to hit. Uh, Jeff Jenkins, the lefty, they were playing the Mets. And this was a point where there wasn't a three batter rule for the bullpen. So the Mets could bring in relievers. And, you know, sometimes you just did that duel, sending up pinch hitters and relievers uh, as far and to, to try and get the more ideal matchup. So the Mets were like, all right, we're going to bring in Pedro Feliciano to face Jenkins. So the Phillies had to sit there and, and you know, consider, all right, so what do we want to do here? Do we want to stick with Jenkins or do we want to go to someone else on the bench? The problem was, on the bench, were Eric Bruntlett and So Taguchi. You know, Jeff Jenkins is the bat you're going to there, because Jeff Jenkins was brought in to the Phillies, at first, to be the starting um, left fielder. Like, he he was supposed to be a starting player when the Phillies got him. He wound up in a bench role, but he, uh, but like, obviously he's got a more reliable bat. You know, even though he doesn't have that starting job, he is still somebody who can contribute in that situation. Out of those three options, you're going with Jenkins. That's just in general. But because, you know, strategy and all that, 
um, the Phillies were considering, okay, let's let's think about this. Do we want Jenkins to face Feliciano or do we want Bruntlett? <laughs> it's a shame I can't say his name without laughing, but that's not fair. He is also a world champion. Eric Bruntlett. There, there we go. Bruntlett or So Taguchi, two guys who aren't known for their bats. So Charlie Manuel had a decision to make, or at least he would have had a decision to make if he had still been in the dugout. Problem was, he'd been kicked out of the game. So he wasn't around. He was he was in the clubhouse. It wasn't his decision to make. Uh, this was hours before. So it landed on Jimmy Williams to decide, all right, what are we doing here? Now, obviously, it's regular season baseball. You win some games, you lose some games. You know, we all know how the season goes. Even good teams lose. And in baseball, you lose one, you, you can come back out the next night. Like, the, the amount of games and the frequency of games and the sheer volume of baseball tends to blur things together at the very least. So, you know, you, you almost look back on moments like this where you're like, wait, what? they are putting so much thought into winning a regular season game. And you're like, yeah, well, yeah, they also, they still want to win the game. And it's the Mets. Every game against the Mets matters, especially in 2007 and 2008. You don't want to mess around with that. You want to win the game. So, Jimmy, there's Jimmy Williams having to decide, all right, do I send in a pinch hitter for my pinch hitter, or do I just let it ride and let Pedro Feliciano face Jeff Jenkins? He decides to send in a pinch hitter. And when it came down to it, he told So Taguchi, hey, grab a bat, get out there, team needs you. So it's really funny, because looking back, Charlie Manuel was then asked, hey, who would you have gone with in that scenario? And he was like, I don't know. I have no idea, which means he probably, I, knowing Charlie and his focus on hitting I, and, and his, um, his desire to follow his gut, I feel like he probably would have stuck with Jenkins. Just a guess. Just because Jenkins is the stronger hitter and, you know, he probably, he, that's, that's where he would have gravitated towards. So, you know, the bases were loaded in the ninth inning. You're, you're probably thinking you're betting, you're betting on, um, a pretty small chance of an outcome. If you're going to Bruntlett and even lesser so to Gucci, like that is quite the gamble. I would say you think you've noticed something you like something about that matchup, or there's a twinge in your gut. That's just like, Oh yeah, no, I looked at so to Gucci and we made this, we had, we had this fleeting moment of eye contact and in that moment, I just felt something that made me think, yeah, he's got a bat right now. It's very, I feel like it probably wouldn't have been a very sound strategic statistical decision. The kind of decision that's going to have nerds watching through binoculars above, ripping their hair out uh, and kicking laptops. So it was uh, it was an interesting choice because, you know, again, statistically, so Deguchi was over 16 as a pinch hitter so far that season. So again, I'm, I'm saying this as though I was like, yeah, it was the right choice. And Jimmy Williams and I are on the same page. You just got to go with your gut. But I would have looked at one stat and it would have been that 0 for 16 as a pinch hitter. And I would have thought, why are we, what are we talking about? Just get Jenkins out there. This is what, this is not a debate. Just get out there, Jeff, get out there and win the game, Jeff Jenkins. Well, things looked pretty grim as Taguchi went out there at Shea stadium and he fell behind 0 and 2 in the count. So he steps out, he chokes up a bit, you know, gives the field a, a look, you know, just does a little pan across the field, chokes up on his bat, gets back in the dugout, or gets back in the batter's box, and cracks a double over Andy Chavez's head in right field. Brings in a couple of runs, 
Sotaguchi, the big hero, and the Phillies went on to score six runs in that inning to win eight to six over the Mets. Absolutely nuts that they were down six to two going into that inning uh, on the road. And Jimmy Williams decided to go with Sotaguchi and wound up kicking off a rally that won them the game, which is not a game they looked like they were going to win. And it was not a game that you thought Sotaguchi was going to play a key offensive role in, certainly. So just another moment in a long season and another moment as part of a guy's career who, you know, was here and may not be super well remembered at this point now, you know, so many years removed from the 2008 World Series. People remember the heroes who played out in the games. People remember the heroes who stepped into the batter's box and made the defensive plays. And, you know, we all know the big moments from those runs. But there are other other moments in you know 2008, even during the regular season, where Jimmy, Jimmy Williams did a lot of stuff behind the scenes. But in this one case, he also got to do something in front of the scenes. And it played a big role. And it was just one little story I found uh, of the very crucial role that Jimmy Williams played that Charlie Manuel was very aware of during Jimmy Williams' time with the Philadelphia Phillies. Another cool thing about 2008 and Jimmy Williams was, uh, I know we all remember Brett Myers' walk that set up the Shane Victorino Grand Slam, uh, but Brett Myers was pretty on fire at the plate in that postseason, when he could be, when he wasn't playing in an AL park. Uh, But in Game 2 of the NLCS, Myers really got people talking with a 3-for-3 night in which he was, uh, he had three base hits, scored twice, and, you know, was, knowing what Brett Myers is like, pretty proud of himself. Uh, And, you know, hey, he went 3-for-3. You can be proud of that, certainly. Uh, Anybody, not even just a pitcher, but probably a pitcher especially. And by the time he was playing in an American League ballpark in the World Series, he he actually told reporters, it's depressing not being able to get up there and and get his hacks in. Uh, But yeah, after that game two of the NLCS, Greg Dobbs actually told reporters that the fact that Myers had been able to square up and drive the ball as well as he had in that game wasn't as crazy as it seemed. Apparently, it was Jimmy Williams who Brett Myers had worked with uh, to get his stance right so that he might be able to be able to contribute a little more for the Phillies in the, in, uh, when you know that rare opportunity came about. So we have Jimmy Williams to thank, uh, at least partially, for Brett Myers' 3-for-3 three three night in Game 2 of the 2008 NLCS. You never know where a guy is going to make an impact, but... If you're going to make one, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good spot. But Jimmy Williams was always content to to kind of be in the background. So he didn't really want a lot of credit for things like that. And knowing us here in Philadelphia, we probably we'll, we'll heap credit on anybody. We love an underdog story. We love when somebody goes from the background to the foreground. And yeah, he he, he might have gotten a sense of that and known that like, look, if I make <laughs> if I make it any kind of clear that I had a role in these situations, I'm going to start being celebrated and noticed and, you know, lauded and put on a pedestal. And Jimmy Williams just doesn't seem like he was, he was that kind of coach. He was, he was content to, to be in the background and play a supporting role, which is, you know, exactly what you want to see from a bench coach or co-manager regardless. So just a a really impactful guy, I think, who, who really made, um, really had some influence here in Philadelphia while he was here. And I didn't want um, another week to go by without, Mentioning his passing, because he was an important guy in Philly's history, just perhaps not the most well-known one. Like I said, 
He might be better known in a place like Boston, where he served as the manager for several years. Uh, and and in truth, you know, that is certainly you're certainly seeing plenty of Jimmy Williams anecdotes uh, in the days since his passing coming out of Boston writers. Um, and he's largely credited with turning things around in Boston. Like they never won a World Series with him. Obviously, they didn't win again until 2004 and he was let go in 2001. But uh, as the 40th manager in Red Sox history, he uh, led them to back-to-back playoff appearances in the late 90s, in 98 and 99. Now, you know, if you're a baseball fan, if you were cognizant of what was going on in baseball at that time, you know as well as I do, that was just that's just Yankees land in your brain. That was just when the Yankees were just burning through everyone, and it just feels like it just felt like the Yankees were always going to win, and there was no way around them. And, you know, it would be great if this was a story about how Jimmy Williams and the Red Sox got around them. They did not. Uh, But he was named, Williams, he was named American League Manager of the Year in 1999. Uh, They won 94 games that season, according to the Boston Sports Journal. That was the most games they'd won in a season since 1986, which had been, at that point, their last World Series title. And they actually were, they had a string of seasons where they finished in second place for eight straight years, which, you know, is it's it's good to finish in second. You know, you're probably even back then you had a chance. That, OK, we're, we might be a playoff team. Um, but that was just the nature of playing in the AL East at that point. Uh, you got to get by the Yankees. You had to. And they just they just didn't have the they just didn't have the bullets to beat the Yankees at that point. Uh, the Yankees were just too historically good. But Jimmy Williams still was able to make an impact. And he also just had a reputation as a guy who was always you know, messing with things behind the scenes a little bit, always fiddling with dials, always pulling levers. And Dan Duquette, uh, who was the GM at the time in Boston, that apparently did not align with his strategy. And there were plenty of frank exchanges of ideas, let's say, between the two of them. And that ultimately led to Williams no longer working in Boston. He was let go in August of 2001. Um, He won 414 games as the manager in Boston, which puts him in top 10 most winning managers in Boston Red Sox franchise history. And, you know, he, he, he managed the guys who would go on to win the World Series and break the curse in Boston. Manny Ramirez... Nomar Garcia-Para, Jason Veritek, Tim Wakefield, Derek Lowe. I mean, these are these are the guys who were on the cover of Sports Illustrated a few years after Jimmy Williams wasn't in Boston anymore. But he was, you know, he, he really got them started on the road to success. And, you know, he deserves credit for that. Um, but, yeah, just a, a guy who, who really impacted just ev- about everywhere he went. I think there's probably one of those guys who a lot of people in-house have a lot of stories about. Um, just a, a career baseball guy, and he, yeah, he passed away pat, this past Monday at the age of 80. He was in Florida after after a brief illness, but a true baseball man and a guy who contributed in a lot of ways that we'll probably never even know uh, to Philadelphia Phillies baseball in the small time that he was here. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Hitten Season. As always, if you want to find new episodes, head on over to billypen.com slash season or get them from where you get any of your typical podcasts. We're everywhere, folks. Uh, and don't forget to check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash season. We'll have new episodes of Absolutely Hammered, a fun, pretty unfiltered Phillies happy hour, 
and The Dirty Inning, another show where we talk about the dumbest, funniest, and most obscure innings in Philadelphia Phillies history. There's still a couple more weeks of offseason yet to go, and if the Phillies' past inaction is any indication, we don't have very much to look forward to, but then actual baseball will start being played, and we will all be reminded that, oh, right, this is a team that has gone to the NLCS in back-to-back years. They are uh, a roster full of good players. They re-signed one of their best pitchers to be here for the foreseeable future. And, you know, they're all but primed to make another run in the playoffs again. Who's going to stop them? The Braves? <laughs> uh, wouldn't it be terrible if Ken Giles ended the Phillies season? As a, why, 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 why am I doing this? No, don't forget. Forget about that. That didn't. That hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. Uh, and the Phillies will be back on the field soon. And we will have plenty to talk about when that happens. As always, uh, thanks for listening. I'm Justin Clue. You can follow me on Twitter at Justin underscore Clue. And check out my work at Baseball Prospectus and Billy Penn. Thanks for listening. And from WHYY and Billy Penn, this has been Hidden Season.